Thank you, Tony. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me ask you one of those questions I don't expect you to answer out loud, but I want you to be honest. How many of you like to be approved? How many of you seek approval from people? Whether it be your parents, your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your employer. At times we can become approval addicts. And, and in times we're looking for approval in the wrong places. What would you do in order to gain the approval of somebody else? That'll tell you how important it is that you have their approval. And it may be that what you're doing is not something you should be doing just to gain their approval. Paul writes a letter to Timothy, really two that we know of, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And we looked at verse 15 last week, but it talked about showing yourself approved. And when it really comes down to the bottom line, it's way more important to have God's approval than it is man's approval. In fact, Paul addressed it this way in one of his letters. If I was still seeking to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Because there are times taking a stand for the gospel will offend people. You'll lose approval from some people if you just live a godly life. People don't like it. But we all want to hear one day, well done, from God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. One of my heroes is Billy Graham. Passed away a little over a year ago in February of last year. And I saw an interview with Dr. Graham and Diane Sawyer. And Diane Sawyer asked him as he approached the end of his life, she said, what do you think about? One thing he said, the thing that amazed him was the brevity of life. He lived to be almost 100 if he had lived to November of last year, he would have been 100 years old. You think, well, that's not brief. But in the light of eternity, that's still a vapor. It's brief. And then he said, I look forward to seeing Jesus. He says, what do you hope to hear him say? And she, he said, I hope to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then Diane Sawyer had the nerve to ask, do you think you'll hear that? And he said, I don't know. Well, tears are in my eyes at this point because I'm thinking, if Billy Graham doesn't know, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> I promise you, last February, Billy Graham was ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ, and I'm sure he heard him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So today's message is, how do you live a life that would receive that kind of statement from Jesus? So I want to pick back up in verse 15 and then get to the passage for today, 20 through 26. So I'm going to read verse 15 to remind us again of that and make a few comments, but the focus is going to be verses 20 through 26. Again, this is Paul, just to give you context, writing from a dungeon in Rome. Most of the time that Paul was in prison, he was in sometimes under house arrest, sometimes just in a regular prison, now towards the end of his life, he's probably literally weeks or months away from being put to death. And he's writing from a dungeon, a pit in Rome. And here's what he says to Timothy, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Then verse 20. Now, in the large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, 
If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Verse 15. Be diligent, Timothy. And if some of you are wondering, why are you skipping those verses around verse 15? We dealt with those last week. Check it out on iTunes or podcast or go on our website. You can listen to the message from last week. It was verses 14 through 19. But Paul, 25 times in this letter, says to Timothy to do something. And apparently, some of what he tells him to do, he says, don't be timid. So apparently, Timothy had some issues of timidity. He had some issues of weakness. And other times he tells him, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. So I don't, we don't know how old Timothy was, but perhaps he was young in the faith and also young in his years. And Paul says, don't use that as an excuse. Set an example. From 1 Timothy he says that. So when he says, be diligent, that's work. That means to make an effort. That means be earnest. To one day stand before God really in this earth life and one day in eternity, without any shame because, no, you weren't perfect. But you lived a life where God would say, well done. It's approved. The purpose of this diligence is to please God. That's our audience. That's who we're living our life to please. As you come to faith in Christ, as a believer, we want to be an approved workman. And he says one of the ways you do that is by accurately handling the Bible, accurately handling the word of truth. In fact, it's the word we get the word orthodontist or orthodoxy from. It means to cut straight. It would be used of a farmer plowing a row. You ever tried to plow a row, by the way? I'm talking about old school plowing. I grew up with one of those little plows that had a little wheel on it. You're trying to, it is not not the way to go. Get a tiller. But even with a tiller, sometimes you get back, if you till a long row, and you look back and thought, who was driving that thing? That's what, so what Paul is saying is accurately handle the word of truth. It takes work. Accurately handle the Bible. Accurately handle the word of God. Like a farmer plowing a straight row or a mason cutting a stone so that he can be placed into a building and it's straight. And the way you do that, we mentioned this last week, I did last week, you study it. So you're not accurately handling the word of truth if you never read the Bible. You also apply it personally. So one of the things you do is you read Scripture every day is not just, God, show me something I can tell everybody about. But it's, God, I open my life to your word. Would you show me something today that applies to me? Like, would you apply it to my life? Would I come in more conformity with the truth of your word? So first of all, study it. Secondly, apply it personally and then teach it correctly because it's the word of truth. 
Can I, can I say this? You, you can't make up for content with volume or enthusiasm. You ever been around those kind of preachers that think, well, maybe if I scream a little louder, this will sound better. I call those suck and blow preachers. I was at a men's conference in Atlanta a few years ago, and they had one of those kind of preachers. And we got back on the bus, heading back to the hotel, and they were talking about the speakers that day. It had been all day. And they're talking about this one particular guy. I don't remember his name, so I don't have to mention his name. You may be related to him. I don't know. But they're all talking about this guy. And they said, well, what do you think, Robert? And I said, well, let me ask you something. What did he say? And they looked at me like deer in headlights. I said, that's my point. He said nothing really well. So be careful. You're not accurately handling the word of truth if you just make up for content with volume or enthusiasm. Now, I'm really excited about this. Well, you better be excited about something of substance and not just putting on a show. And that applies to preachers and all of us. Study the Word, apply it to your life, and then teach it correctly. And then he gives this illustration in verse 20. He's kind of told them what to avoid. He gets to verse 20, and he says, in, in a large house, and, and Paul's talking about the church throughout this passage. He's talking about in a, the church can be compared to a large house, literally a house of wealth, large, big house. There's several kinds of vessels. There's some made of gold and silver. There's some made of wood and earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. The illustration he's given is this. If you're invited over to a dinner party in a wealthy person's house, they're going to bring out the gold and silver implements. They're going to show you the stuff that lets you know this is a place of substance. This is a wealthy person's house. And the implements that were not of honor may have been used for dishonorable purpose, sometimes even would be thrown away. They're not going to trot those out in front of you. And so what Paul's saying is, even in the church, there's two kinds of people. He, he's dealt by name with three of them in 1 Timothy and now in 2 Timothy. He's literally called out some men by name. He's excommunicated, kind of kicked them out, but they still had influence, apparently. We're introduced to a brand new one a few verses earlier than this passage, Philetus. The one he mentions in both places is Humanius. I call him Humaniac. And apparently, even though he had kind of been ostracized by Paul, he still had influence. He was still teaching wrong doctrine. He wasn't cutting straight. He wasn't actually handling the word of truth. He was teaching falsehood. And hello, we have some of those today. There's men and women on television that if you're not careful, you need to listen to what they're saying and does it square with Scripture because if it doesn't, they're a false prophet. And they may have a big crowd, but it doesn't mean they're sharing the truth. Be careful. Some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore. I love when we get to words like therefore because you look to see what it's there for. And so Paul's made his point. He's used his illustration. So therefore, Timothy, anyone who cleanses himself for these things will be a vessel of honor. Cleanse yourself. To cleanse thoroughly, literally completely purge. And what does he cleanse himself from? He's talking earlier in this passage. He's talking about worldly and empty chatter. And he's going to talk a little bit more about speculations here. But he uses the word gangrene. He says, Timothy, if this isn't dealt with, it becomes like gangrene. Well, we know in the body, gangrene occurs from an injury or an infection that if untreated 
could cause you to lose whatever part of the body it is that got gangrene or could kill you. So Paul's saying to Timothy, avoid those things and cleanse yourself literally under the divine, sovereign cleansing of Almighty God. Be clean from those things. Gangrene makes you unclean and could take your life or a limb. The same thing's true about the stuff Paul's writing about. False teaching. Stuff that doesn't square with Scripture. Endless speculations about stupid stuff. So he says to Timothy, if you will cleanse yourself from that, three things happen. First, you'll be sanctified. Literally, you'll be made holy. You'll be set apart and useful like an honorable vessel of gold and silver. You'll be sanctified. This is a perfect passive participle. I don't get into English lessons too much, but it basically means this is a condition that already exists and is continuing. When you come to faith in Christ, you're set apart. You're sanctified, but there's still a work going on in your life. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter. He's quoting an Old Testament passage. He says, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's our goal. That's what God is up to in our life. From the day you come to faith in Christ, he's making you more like Jesus. He's making you holy. Why? Because he's holy. So if you cleanse yourself and allow God to cleanse you, you'll be sanctified. Secondly, you'll be useful to the master. That Paul uses the same word. I think he only uses it twice. The second time he uses it later in this book. 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, to Timothy, he says, go by and pick up Mark. I need him here. He would be useful to me here. So Paul says, if you're a clean vessel, you're useful to God. If you're not a clean vessel, you're kind of set on a shelf. You're not usable. And the third thing he says, you're prepared for every good work. You're in a condition ready to be used. It carries the idea of willingness, eagerness, and readiness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and I want to make a point here, sometimes we hear this, you're to avoid people like that, and we think, well, if I never hang out with sinners, how are they going to hear about Jesus? Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and following. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Then he gets specific. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have gone out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. It was so important that Timothy remains clean and pure and usable. He's been set apart. Paul's saying, listen, people in the church that aren't living godly lives, avoid them. Now, we also learn about church discipline and those kind of things that the church is involved in in restoring people like that. But part of the avoiding of it is you're not giving credence or approval to the activity they're involved in. So he's not talking about hanging out with ungodly people. He's talking about people in the church that are acting ungodly. Avoid such people. So that's the challenge that Paul's issued. Now it gets real practical. And the question is, where are you running? You're running one way or the other. He says, flee youthful lust. Flee literally means to run away from, to shun. We get the word fugitive for this. So the picture I want you to get is we're running away from something, but we're running to something. 
flee ungodliness. Flee youthful lust. And in case you're thinking, well, that just refers to sex. That's not at all refers to it. It refers to the sins of immaturity, covetousness, jealousy, pride, envy. It means garden what you watch. Garden where you go. Garden who you talk to and listen to. What goes in your ears, isn't it amazing? When you see something, you can't forget it. So be careful. There's things you see sometimes you wish you had never seen. Say, man, that's a, that's a picture I'll never get rid of. That's what makes you unclean. And, and Paul's saying avoid that. Run from that. Not, not just avoid it, but run. <laughs> Put some effort into it. Flee from that. But I love the fact it's not just what you run away from. It's what you run to. We should hate those things that we're running from so much that it makes us nauseous. And yet the problem is, even as a believer, sometimes we want to go back and play with those things that are dangerous and ungodly and unhelpful and don't keep us clean. I had this thought a few years ago. I had attempted to have a surgery. I ended up having a bad reaction to one of the drugs they were given. It's called cephalosporin, if anybody's here. It's a type of penicillin. And so they're pretty confident that's what I was having a reaction to. So I thought, okay, I'll write that down. I'll make sure I don't take any more of that. But they said, no, we want you to go have some allergy tests. We're going to test you for, we're going to make sure it wasn't latex or whatever in the hospital. So I went and had a bunch of tests that I kind of thought were unnecessary, but apparently my doctor needed to make a car payment. And so I went and had all these allergy tests. They couldn't figure it out until finally they said, well, let's test you to see if it's cephalosporin. I thought, wait a minute, that's what almost killed me in the hospital. My blood pressure fell to 50. And you're thinking, there's supposed to be two numbers. I didn't have another number. I about died. They said, we're just going to put a little on your arm. And I thought, I don't want it anywhere near me. And that's when you get the tap on the shoulder from God and saying, I wish you felt that way about everything that was bad for you. That's how we ought to feel about things. The stuff that's unclean, that is bringing us down, that's making us unuseful to God, that's contaminating our life, that's becoming like gangrene, that's eating away at us, it ought to be like when they came and put that. And here's the thing. He said, we're just going to put a little on our skin. We'll come back and check you in five minutes. I thought, wait a minute, I may be dead in five minutes. Like what? Set a timer for crying out loud. They finally figured out that's what it was, and so I don't take that anymore. But not only do we run away from youthful lust, we pursue. You, you can't run away. You can't pursue until you've run away. If you're still playing with the stuff you're supposed to be running away from, it's real hard to pursue God and the things of God. So for some of you this morning, it may just be God's getting your attention. There's some things in your life that are like gangrene. They're eating away at you and your relationship with God. Get them out of your life so that you can pursue the things that God calls us to pursue. First is righteousness. Righteousness is a hard way to define, but it basically means being right with God. It means equity of character or act. It's what God pronounces over you You don't become righteous in your flesh. You become righteous because you're a child of God, and he now looks at you like he looks at Jesus. You're pronounced righteous. 
The greatest source of righteousness is in God's Word. That's why Paul says, Timothy, you got to be diligent to cut this straight. Because it's going to be how you know how to be righteous. Faith. Better in this context to use the word faithfulness. But it literally means firm persuasion, moral conviction. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, faithfulness. And so that's what Timothy is to pursue. Pursue faithfulness. Pursue love. It's that agape word. It's a, it's a word of love of choice. It's a love without strings attached. It's not I love you because you do this. I love you because you love me or you're good to me. I choose to love you. That's what God has done for us. He loved us even when we were unlovable. He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you're pursuing righteousness, faith, love. You pursue peace. That's where we get the word serene or serenity from. Peace. Being right with God, being right with others. Pursue peace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not an absence of war. You can have peace even in the middle of war, but it's harmony. And I love this. You can miss this if you're not careful. Pursue these things with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's how Christianity is intended to be lived, is in community. One of the greatest gifts, students, that God gives you is your youth group. One of the greatest gifts God gives us is church, small group Bible studies where we with other people are pursuing these things. And we have help from one another. When one's down, the other can pick them up. When one needs encouragement, the other one can pray for them. We're pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace with other people. The church, small group, we do it from a pure heart. And then last is the servant the Lord's servant, verse 23. He comes back around to what he's been talking about already in this passage, but refuse, decline, beg off, uh-uh to this. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that all they do is produce quarreling. It's not a problem to ask questions. It's a problem to try to create problems. Are the questions you're asking because you want information, you want to know the truth, or is it you're just trying to trip somebody up or create an argument? And you know people like that that are argumentative, and some of them are in your church. It says, Timothy, avoid that. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he told Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 4, I'm going to give you context and read verse 3. I think verse 4 is on the screen. This is what he wrote to Timothy early. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So, so the point is ultimately to lead people to faith in Christ, not to have all these answers <laughs> that are just fruitless speculation. They produce quarrels, but the Lord's bondservant, and this is what Paul often in his letter said, Paul, 
Apostle Paul, bond servant, willing slave. Yes, that applies to preachers, but folks, it applies to all of us who've come to faith in Christ. Who do we serve now? Us or God? Do we serve the devil? Do we serve God? As a child of God, we're serving God. So we're bond servants, voluntary slaves of our master. So you're not to be quarrelsome, but you're to be kind to all. The way you treat other people, kindness, will affect how you can teach those people. So he's calling them to be kind to all. Secondly, able to teach, literally to be instructive. It doesn't mean you know everything, but it means you're teaching people what you do know. And it may not be that you have a pulpit, a platform, an audience. It may just be as you live your life. And people know you're a Christian, and they ask you this question, what's different about you? One of the things you'll do is teach them. This is what's happened to me. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Doesn't mean you know everything. People that think they don't know everything get real intimidated and nervous around preachers. We don't know everything either. I've had people invite me to come to their Sunday school class. You would love our class. Just don't come when I'm teaching. What are they saying? They think I know everything. People that know me well have figured it out. I don't. I don't know everything. If I've studied it, I have a little better angle on it. But I've had people like, is that right, preacher? I'm like, I don't know. You studied the passage. I didn't. But able to teach. All right, this is the hard one coming up. Patient when wrong. One of the definitions of patience is long-suffering, and that's pretty apt. It means suffering long. It means being patient even when people wrong you. So when people talk bad about you or do something to you or they become quarrelsome, we're to be patient. I wish that wasn't on the list, but it is <laughs> because it demonstrates godliness. It's also part of the fruit of the Spirit. And then gentleness, with gentleness correcting those in opposition. Human nature is when somebody opposes you is to go back at them with both barrels open, guns a-blazing, and yet we're to be gentle. Now, the word gentle does not mean timid because Paul's already rebuked Timothy for timidity, but it means gentle. Power under control is the literal meaning. You ever ridden a horse? Raise your hand if you've ridden a horse. Hopefully there's more. Okay, good. A lot of you have ridden a horse. There's places here at the beach you can ride Horses. And on, in the off-season, you ride horses on the beach. It's kind of cool. Have you ever sat on a horse and thought, man, this thing is powerful? Horses become productive and useful when they are broken, but you don't want to break their spirit or their energy. You just want to get them to the point where they'll let you ride them. Have you ever sat on the back of them one, one though and thought, man, if this horse wanted to, it could crush me? Hopefully you never get on a horse like that. I've seen horses try to brush up against a tree to get the rider off because the rider was abusing the horse. I've seen them kind of buck up. But I'm hoping that I'm smarter than they are. Our administrator here at the chapel, Gary, and I went horseback riding one time right outside of Pigeon Forge in Sevierville, Tennessee. And I, I had this illusion that horses were not as smart as I am until I met the horse I was on. The guy said, you two are going to be at the front. So it was me and Gary. We're riding up this hillside at this horse park, and it was a trail. He said, when you get to the top, there'll be a stop sign. You need to stop and wait about five minutes for your horse to regain 
his compose, you know, to recover from climbing that steep hill with you big boys on his back. And so I thought, okay, so we, I, yeah, we got to talk, and I forgot about it. We get to the stop, the top, and our horse stopped. I thought, why is he stopping? Then I saw the stop sign. I said, our horse can read. And I remember thinking, okay, we've got to wait about five minutes. Well, we got back to talking. I wasn't paying attention to the clock. The horse takes back off. And I looked down. It had been five minutes. I thought, he's got like a hoof watch or something. You know, Somehow he's smarter than I am. He knew to stop and he knew to take back off. He's probably thinking, I'm smarter than you are, you idiot. And he takes back off. But to be gentle means power under control. It doesn't mean timid. Folks, we live in a world where the world needs to see we are resolute in what we believe, and yet we treat people with gentleness, gently correcting those. And the word correcting is literally the word for training up a child, to educate, to discipline. But we do it gently with those who are in opposition for this reason. Last thing I'm going to talk about. Almost done. Here's the point. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. The, the reason that we do what we do is not to win an argument, is to win souls. It's so that the people we come in contact with, in fact, the people God puts across our path, would repent and seek forgiveness which even that is a gift from God. That's what Paul's teaching. That God would grant them, that God would give them repentance. It's, it's a gift because, first of all, it comes from the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to show you this is wrong. But it's also a gift because it says there's a second chance. The whole point of repentance is that God hasn't wiped you off the face of the earth. He's allowed you to turn from what you were pursuing and flee the stuff you shouldn't be pursuing and go towards the things you should be. So the point is that could even happen in church with people who are professing believers but don't act like it. We're careful how we treat them. We don't treat them weak or timid, but we treat them with gentleness and we correct them with gentleness. A lot of churches stuff's happening and nobody's correcting the stuff that's happening. Church discipline can be done with gentleness, but it's done to correct so that ultimately it would lead that individual, man or woman, to come to their senses, literally become sober again. And that's, I think, Satan's greatest ploy is to keep us doing what we're doing that we shouldn't be doing, that we almost become drunk and inebriated with. And what God does is brings people across that path to show with gentle correction the error of their ways. Because we've been held captive. They've been held captive. The point is to set captives free. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Challenge us with this passage. God, to live our lives in such a way that one day we will see you and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, our ministries, whether in full-time ministry or believers working a regular job or going to school or living in community, the point of all this is not so that we can win arguments, but so that we can bring people to faith in Christ as you draw people to Christ because you're drawing them to yourself. May we live the kind of life 
that what we teach is backed up by what we live. Challenge us to that truth in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing.